Today, I want to talk to you about envy and its destructive power. You see, envy left unchecked is a self-inflicted personal weapon of destruction. An ancient story goes that one day a group of demons raced back to Satan to report on their failure to do something Satan had demanded them to do. And as soon as they got to Satan, uh, they said, Satan, we blew it because Satan had asked them to destroy a monk by the name of Matthew who had been living peacefully in the desert for years, a desert cave. And the demon said to Satan, we threw everything we could at him, money, wine, women, power, uh, comfort, a bed. And he refused everything. And Satan was livid and he said to the demons, come with me, I will show you how to handle a man like this. So they all flew to the desert cave that Matthew was in and Satan got alongside Matthew and whispered in his ear, Matthew, your close friend Matthias, had just been appointed the bishop of all bishops, the bishop of Alexandria in your Egypt. And upon hearing that, Matthew the monk cursed God and died. Envy. For the last 16, 1700 years of uh, of Christianity, envy has been regarded as one of the seven deadly sins, one of the root sins. Because in contrast to love, which rejoices in the good of another, envy resents it, envy stews on it, envy seeks ways to dilute it, to poison it, to destroy it. I mean, think about movies today. Movies like Gladiator or Pearl Harbor or... Lion King, Snow White, Aladdin. All sorts of TV shows, other movies, plays throughout the centuries where envy is a central theme. Why is envy such a central theme? And the answer is because it's a central theme in the sinful human heart. So not surprisingly, the Bible has a whole lot to say about envy. The Bible uh, gives us examples, makes all sorts of extraordinary warnings and uh, statements about envy, commands. I mean, if we go back to the very beginning uh, uh, of the Bible, isn't jealousy why Cain killed Abel, his very own brother? Uh, uh, Why Rachel, who couldn't get pregnant, coveted her sister Leah's ability to conceive and have children, so much so that Rachel threatened suicide. Isn't it why Joseph's 11 brothers sold him into slavery, human trafficking? Because they so resented their father's favoritism towards Joseph and all these crazy dreams Joseph was having. Envy. And the same exists today. It's why James chapter 3 and verse 16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there, there, you find disorder and every evil practice. You see, 
according to the Bible, and one of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible shoots straight, and it, it, it tells us what is sin and what isn't sin, and it is overly, overly consistent in telling us that envy isn't just a little thing. Envy is always, always a sin. We think it's no big deal. The Bible says, no, no, no. It is a big deal, and it can become a much bigger deal left unchecked. So today, what I want to do in the minutes we have together is I want to go back to the Old Testament and look at the great envy story in the Old Testament. The great tragedy of Israel's first king, Saul, and his envy toward the young up-and-coming David. So if you have your Bibles, grab your Bibles. We're going to go to Matthew, or Matthew Samuel chapter 18. I get the monk and the passage confused. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let me give you a little context. In the previous chapter, this young David took on the Philistine, and the Philistines were Israel's greatest enemy at that time, their giant by the name of Goliath, and David killed Goliath while the entire Israeli armed forces, including King Saul, were paralyzed by fear. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women of Israel came from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with trembles and lyres. As they danced, they sang. Now note this, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God, note from God, not from Satan, because this is a part, God is sending judgment on Saul. So God sends this evil spirit, and it came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had his spear in his hand. Now, when a king is sitting in his house with a spear in his hand, it's a sign he's not having a good day. <laughs> and so what did he do? Well, he hurled it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops of Israel's army in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, and we can pronounce it either Michal or Michal, was in love with David, and when they saw, told Saul about it, he, he was pleased, and he said, I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Verse 24, when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan 
was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Chapter 19, verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. Now verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. You may be seated. Now you get it, don't you? This is Israel's first family. And, and what's going on is just terrible. So what I want to do is I want to do three things. I want to look at what envy is. I want to look at how it progresses. We just read about both of those. And then where we find the cure, which comes from the beginning of chapter 18. So what is envy? Let me take you back to verse 8. Look at verse 8. And if you underline or highlight in your Bible, there's two words I want you to underline or highlight. And then there are two words, but me. Envy always thinks, what about me? Why he, but not me? Saul can't say, I'm so grateful, I'm so thankful for what David has done. Because envy makes everything about yourself. Envy is he, but me, she, but me. It's the painful and resentful awareness of another person's advantage. Coveting is wanting what another person has. Envy is resenting it because you don't have it. And that's what's going on here. And so here, let me give you the envy test. You'll see this on the screens. The envy test is how do you respond to the success of others? And you'll say, fine. But let me take it a couple steps further. How do you respond to the success of others if they're close to you? And it's, and it's in an area that's important to you. Envy becomes an issue uh, with us because of the people around us and the areas we care about. And so the question is, can you rejoice with them or do you pout? Uh, does their success, their advantage, their blessing make you sad? Now, envy here, I want you to think about envy this way. In our passage, is the inability to enjoy another's ten thousands because of comparison and the inability to be grateful for your thousands because of resentment. So how do you react when he gets the promotion you thought you deserve more. I mean, if you were the general in Saul's army, you got replaced by this young kid of a shepherd named David, would you support him or would you undermine him? Those of you that are students that are here, how do you respond when someone you think is less capable makes the team? or becomes a starter, or gets first chair, or gets the dates? Do you, do you badmouth them? Or do you enjoy what God is doing? You mothers, grandmothers, more than anything, you want your, your children to thrive. 
So how do you respond when friends or, 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 or people in, in, in your social circles uh, have children who always thrive more? How do you respond? How do you do with the envy tests? You know, today we experience house envy, talent envy, car envy, appearance envy, even hair envy. Dog envy, I could go on and on. But boy, do our three-year-olds struggle with toy envy. Envy is a part of our heart uh, uh, from the very beginning of our lives. Now, what I've just said is the psychological side of envy. What I want to go on, uh, as we're talking about this definition, is move to the spiritual or the theological side, because envy has both. There's an emotional component, and there's a theological component. And I want to go back to the last sentence in verse 8. Saul raises this rhetorical question, what more can he get but the kingdom? Now, back in chapter 15, everything falls apart for Saul. Because the prophet Samuel, the godly prophet Samuel, had commanded Saul to do these particular things, and Saul blatantly disobeyed Samuel's word, which was really God's word. So after Samuel, the prophet, came on the scene, he announced to Saul that he had just lost, because of his disobedience, the kingdom. He had forfeited the throne, and another would one day become the king. That was in uh, chapter 15 and uh, around there. And it was a horrible moment for Saul. And now you fast forward to our chapter and, and these verses that we just read in chapter 18 and Saul is hearing the singing of the women and apparently it clicks in his mind and he realizes that next king is going to be David. David, the upstart. And Saul refuses to accept it. He begins to fight against it. So what is the theological side of envy? Well, envy here, speaking spiritually, is the functional denial of the sovereign reign and rule of God in life. I mean your life. You know, our jobs, our abilities, our talents, our circumstances, even our families, as I have learned so painfully, are not ours to hold on uh, tightly to at all costs, but they're God's to give and take away. So Job famously says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Envy cannot say blessed. There's just no way. And men and women, you students, I, 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 one of the most important things I can say to you this morning is if God intended the days of your life to be easy, they would be. But instead, God intends your days to be tools of refinement. Because he is after your holiness not your functional definition of personal happiness. So God will use setback, failure, loss 
to make you more and more like his son. So what I am saying is envy isn't just unhappiness or resentment at the success of others. It's cosmic treason against the sovereign plan of God for your life. And so if you have bitterness, if you have hyper-competitiveness, if you find yourself jealous and envious and coveting, man, that's not your problem. You don't have an envy problem. You have a belief problem. You have a trust problem. You have a misplaced confidence problem. So that's envy. There's these two sides. Now let me go on to the progression of envy. That's a little more overt here. We see, it, uh, we see the decline in Saul's life in three primary ways. Phases or steps. Step number one. Envy starts, uh, and follow me in this, with a mix. In Saul's life, it starts with a mix of self-pity. He knows he's lost the throne. And comparison. He knows God is blessing David and God is not blessing him. And resentment. He hurls the spear at David. Now underneath that is a deep insecurity. Because one of the things the prophet Samuel told Saul is, Saul, your problem is you are small in your own eyes. You struggle with inferiority, insecurity. You're small in your own eyes. And all of that, what's underneath all of that, is unbelief. We have theoretical belief God exists, but boy, do we struggle with functional belief. Okay, God is sovereign in this particular situation, and I am exactly at this moment in time where God wants me to be. A deep-seated confidence belief in the sovereignty of God. And so let me go on to step two. Step two, we see the progression, and we see this overtly in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 18, when uh, Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, is introduced, and we learn that she is in love with David, and Saul says, man, that's great, because I can use that as a snare in order that the Philistine army might kill David. Now, that's a secret. So he has all these things going on, step one. Then step two, he has this secret plot that he's not telling anybody about. It's undercover, it's covert to see that David is killed. Now step three is when that goes public. And that's the point of reading chapter 19, verses 1 and 11. Saul orders everyone, starting with his son Jonathan, on down to kill, to murder David. And it's lunacy. Because more than anything else, Saul wants approval, but if he is able to kill David, he's going to lose all that approval. It's madness, but that is the progression of sin in the human heart. So you dabble in porn. And soon that sin becomes a full-blown addiction or, or alcohol or drugs as we see with so many young people today. Or you, you have an affair and, and before you know it, your life has exploded. And, and all sorts of other things because sin left unchecked 
in the hands, in the hands of the enemy is going to do everything it can to destroy you. I mean, think about Saul. Saul knows David has been chosen by God. Saul knows what's right. Uh, uh, Saul himself had been chosen by God. Saul knows God's word on this subject. Saul also knows that David is wildly popular. But it doesn't matter because Saul has to be better or he has to appear better. And so now, as a result of these three steps, these three phases, Saul is openly opposing God's will. It's the progression of sin. And he's openly opposing God because the idol has taken over his life. And the idol isn't merely the throne. The idol is his need for approval. And friends, that's what you do when you are small in your own eyes. You spend your life attempting to prove otherwise. And you will give up almost anything. You will surrender almost anything to gain approval. And so here we bump into idolatry. What is idolatry? One of the ways to talk about idolatry is idolatry is taking a good thing and making an ultimate thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with preferences. Uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting people's approval, but if you make that your ultimate thing, it becomes an idol, it becomes a, a master. And, and, and so idol is the, the person that can't live without X. You know, maybe it's a car, maybe it's a title, and maybe it's a certain amount of money or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It, it, it's the student that will do anything, and I was this way in high school before I came to Christ. It was a student that will do anything to be popular. It's parents that will do anything so their kids will be the best. It's lunacy. Saul started out so well. He was striking. He was taller than anybody in Israel. He was handsome. He was a great warrior. He was a great leader. God's hand was on his life. But Saul ended up as one of the seven suicides in the Bible. Because left unchecked, there's always a progression to sin. And that progression always leads to bondage. Saul was in bondage because of his insecurity to the approval of others. This is why Proverbs chapter 4, verse 21 is so important. I hope it's a verse you memorized or will memorize. Above all else, above all else, above everything else in life, Check your heart, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So now we come to the best part, and I'm going to conclude with this. What is the cure? What is the cure for envy? We've 
looked at the two aspects of envy. We've seen the threefold progression. And so what I want to do is I want to take you back to the beginning of chapter 18 and to Saul's son, Jonathan. Now think about it. Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. He is the rightful heir to his father's throne. But amazingly, certainly supernaturally, Jonathan, in contrast to his father Saul, never ever views David as a rival. Even though, it me- even though he knows it means that Jonathan will never be the king. So let's read beginning in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. There is no human reason why Jonathan should not have been the next king. He was every bit as spiritual, as godly as David every bit as courageous, every bit the warrior that that David was. Yet when his father opposes what God is doing in Saul, I mean in David, Jonathan embraces what God is doing in David. I mean, this is amazing. Jonathan knows going forward he's going to be second best, always second best. So look at verse 4 where we have some of these uh, details. When Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David because a robe is a symbol of the throne, Jonathan is relinquishing his right to the throne and giving it to David, the outsider. When he relinquishes his sword and his bow, what he is doing is publicly declaring his submission to David, his commitment to David. I mean, these acts are just incredible, almost unheard of in the ancient world. Because as I said, now going forward, Jonathan will be the second best. And I want to suggest to you, what we have here is one of the most incredible examples in the early books of the Bible of faith in God. Because faith in God always acts. We have an incredible picture of humility, an incredible picture of self-denial, of somebody who's good in his own skin. Jonathan is giving up the greatest opportunity in his life. Maybe the one thing he wanted most in life. Why? In order to participate in God's plan. And that's what I want for you. That's why we're in this passage today. 
And so let me say it again. If God intended all your days to be easy, they would be. And this was a very bittersweet moment for Jonathan. So what is the cure to envy? Now, I am not going to say the cure to envy is becoming like Jonathan in contrast to uh, Saul. So I'm not going to give you five things that characterize Jonathan's life that we need to imitate, although those are worthy things. Instead, I'm going to say this, and some of you have never thought about this. Look to Jonathan because Jonathan points to Jesus. Jonathan here is Jesus in the Old Testament. This is a Christological passage. Jesus is the infinitely better Jonathan. I mean, Jesus didn't just take off his robe and surrender the throne of Israel. Jesus took off his robe, laid aside the throne of heaven in order to become a man. Jesus is the infinitely better Jonathan. Jonathan points to Jesus because Jesus didn't merely relinquish his sword. He allowed himself to be killed by the sword. So the moment you and I believe in Jesus and see his death on the cross in our place for our sins and we receive Jesus and trust him as Lord and Savior, not only do we find forgiveness, but we become adopted into God's forever royal family. And to know Jesus Christ is to be a member of the first family. And that's the point of the table. That's that's the point of of communion. And so I want you to see the cure here. God has given us these passages uh, to point us uh, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the cure to our problem with envy. Because what Jonathan did for David, Jesus Christ has done for you times millions. And when the wonder and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ informs your mind and melts your heart, you're going to change. And then instead of going through life trying to blow out other people's candles, you'll spend your life in love trying to light them. Because in your heart of hearts, you know that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. Amen? Let's pray. To think of Jesus setting aside his throne, allowing himself to be killed, uh, for the likes of me, God, is, is overwhelming. Drive that truth, that reality into our hearts that it might become more and more real, more and more tangible. That we might be men and women 
that instead of being characterized by envy, we're characterized by love. Amen.